And that, that really works for me just to shoot from the hip, go with what is intuitively correct, but have the analytical mind as an override. It's up there just looking like another person on your shoulder going, yeah, that was good, but maybe we should think about this. And for me, that works very well in all situations, and especially motorsport. Welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 43. Today, I welcome Janine Schofner to the show. Janine is quite an incredible lady, an ex-professional sports skydiver and freefall photographer Janine now competes on the international GT endurance stage, including competing a whole four-hour race alone at the Norschleife. We discuss how a chance track day outing led to her being trained by the late great Sabine Schmidt and sparked a lifelong passion for racing. Janine shares tips that you can try on fitness and mental preparation, as well as many other fun stories along the way. So without further ado, grab a pen, grab a coffee, sit back, and let's hear what Janine has to say. You may know that at the end of season one, I wrote the Motorsports Playbook, a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom. I made the notes so that you don't have to. If you've not got it yet, go and grab yourself a copy from the website. So welcome, Janine. Thank you very much, Samir. Good to be here. Well, look, thank you so much for taking time. I'm, as always, I'm, I'm super excited for any guest, but for you in particular, I, I can't wait. Blushing, I'm blushing. <laughs> oh, well, look, there we go. So I'm, I'm winning you over with my charm. No, but honestly, I'm, I'm really excited to see where this conversation goes. Someone who's, who's very much involved at sort of top level motorsport as a driver, but also with a rich background in other sports and in your involvement and that sort of adrenaline pursuit, one might say. So it'll be absolutely fascinating to hear about your background, how you got into racing, what was the appeal, what is the appeal, and then, you know, maybe work towards one or two things that we can go, actually, yeah, I've discovered this or I've, I've done this in my other endeavours. I can't wait for people to hear what they are. This is They're really cool. Some of them are completely terrifying, by the way. I'll just flag that for anyone listening. But, you know, I've taken these approaches and these other endeavours and I've brought that into motorsports and it's really helped me. And it's something I've seen with other maybe amateur drivers or serious amateur drivers and they don't really do that. And and maybe if they did, that would really help them. So how does that sound? It sounds great. And um, I don't think I recommend any drivers going to jump off a cliff just to get the hang of driving a car, which is where my background is in base jumping. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think all sports is all eye-hand coordination and it's all a mental state. It's physical and then it's mental. And you have to divide the two and conquer the two. My history, I started riding motorcycles as a kid. I was 10 years old and my sister had a boyfriend. She was older than me and he had this Suzuki TS250. as the old dual sport Suzuki dirt bike. She, he would park it outside my, my parents' house. And like I was just fascinated with this thing. It was red and it was just made a loud noise. And I was like, ah, oh, this is it. You know, I want that. And then he bought a water pumper, a GT750, the triple two-stroke. And that was just like, oh, my God, you know, it blew my mind. He took me for a couple of laps around the local subdivision. <laughs> and that was yeah, I was hooked on motorcycles. So I, I washed cars and I saved up money and I bought my first dirt bike at the age of 13. What? <laughs> <laughs> my parents had nothing to do with it. They they just looked at me like, oh my God, what a freak. You know, and my sister was going. Have you got like, what's your family? What's your family? Is your brothers and sisters or is it just you on your own? Or is like. <laughs> Me and my sister and no no brothers, just two of us. And uh, my parents, not motorsport people at all. And they kind of watched all this unfold. And they were very forgiving. You know, they were very just, okay, we'll, we'll allow this. She did, you know, save up all her money for three years and she does one. So, okay, we're going to allow it as long as she buys a helmet also, you know. And I would push my dirt bike 
from our house. We lived in this subdivision. I push it up a hill to get to this quarry, and then I'd have to put the bike on the side and drag it underneath the gate because it was private property, private land. <laughs> And I would drag it, you know, and then I would just get, I'd kick it up and I just, I could run my dirt bike for until the gas ran out. And then I would push it back because obviously it wasn't road legal and I was just 13. So, you know, that was kind of the level of devotion I had at that point. Then I met some people and they kind of took pity on me and um, they would come over in their trailer and they'd put the bike in the back and we'd go to different places to ride the bike. Um, but that is my background. You know, I'm just a bit obsessive and I like bright, shiny things and I like things that are fast and fun. So that was my background. And uh, after that, I went into street bikes. I had a plethora of um, rather ridiculous um, Japanese crotch rockets. <laughs> and I've never been without a motorcycle until two years ago. I just sold my hypermotards. So that's kind of like a background. You know, I never got into any serious kind of racing because I could just never afford it at now when I was a kid. So yeah, I've always had a taste for that sort of stuff. And later on in my 20s, um, I did some work for a um, security company that did surveillance equipment. And we sold it to police forces and military worldwide. And so we were always doing, um, meeting these kind of SAS types from all over the world you know, all the secret agency stuff. And it was really kind of cool, sneaky, beaky stuff. And we used to do some demos at MI5 and stuff. And it's just really kind of cool stuff. But I met some SAS guys and we got on like a house on fire, you know, same kind of mindset. What is that mindset? What would you say that mindset was? Because I'm thinking completely bonkers, but you might think it's probably not, actually. It might be more like just controlled fun or something like that. It was just a bit different. Um, well, you're probably right with the completely bonkers. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know it was, it, they were cool. We we had a lot of fun, and I didn't I didn't actually realize they were SOS guys at the time. But they uh, unfolded as we knew each other and good good buddies, really good friends. And um, they just picked me up one day and they said, "We're taking you skydiving." I'm like, "Sounds good. I'll do that." And they took me to a drop zone in uh, all the west of England out by Oxford and they threw me out of the plane strapped to one of them and they all dived down and, and connected to me in free fall and got photographs with these guys and literally under, under a canopy landing I was like mm, career change is coming here shortly really <laughs> wow it just really got to you yeah completely heard that winter I was in Arizona doing my um, AFF course and I did my 20 jumps, got my A license. And then I started just building jumps, jumping in England, lots and lots of skydives. By the time I got four or 500 jumps together, I was putting my cameras on my head. Four or five, sorry, four or 500 jumps together. Yeah, at that point. I've got 4,000 right now. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, but there's not so many. I have friends that have 12,000. So, you know, I, I stopped jumping about 18 years ago. So, you know, this is <laughs> all... <laughs> I shut the cameras in my head because I was a photographer and I started making my money by filming and photographing people and that led me to America and I got thousands of jumps in America filming, photographing people, competing uh, with my husband John and a, a free fly team and taking it pretty seriously doing four, five, six competitions a year and at the same time base jumping you know, <laughs> that's of course skydiving leads into base jumping which I think I don't think I would ever skydive again because I think I've been there and done it. I don't know what I would gain, but I would base jump again because that is just incredible fun. That is a, a mindset of you have to be in control of all your parameters. You have to, you're, you're packing your rig specifically for the object you're jumping off. Um, so there's a low object. You want to pack the slider down for a quick opening. You want to have a big pilot chute so that pulls the canopy open quickly. You've got to be very careful you pack the canopy so it opens head on and you don't get an off heading opening, which is what most people have accidents with, with base jumping. Off heading opening turns you back into the obstacle. So very technical and people think all base jumpers are just crazy, but we, you know, the crazy ones don't last long. I wonder if that's, that's one of the hardest things to, to get over in a way. It's, it's that sort of sunk cost 
opportunity cost curve, isn't it? It's about you hear about people when they they're trying to they're trying to like Mount Everest or something and get up and and literally they're they're on the final push and they've spent weeks and months and a lot of money to get to that point and the weather changes and it's literally you have to turn around and if you don't you're not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think when I think of this situation, I think of that scene in Saving Private Ryan where they're storming the beach and the guy gets his arm blown off, but he so he stops and he turns around. I know it's fiction, obviously, but this is the same mindset. He turns around and he goes and picks up his arm because he's had that his whole life and he needs it. And then he turns around and he, st- he goes back to storming the beach because his mindset is set on storming the beach, you know, and that didn't last very long, I'm sure, because he would have been out. But that, that's exactly that mindset. That's a big no-no, you know. And I think in motorsport also you get to that point where I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm going to do that. And, you know, you have to be aware from a moment-to-moment basis and make good decisions. Yeah, and I think that that really does translate into into racing because there's a lot of decisions you're making if you're if you're even a, like starting off on your own and then going around and then trying to work out the track and find a line and find out how to explore the limits of your car and 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 that kind of thing and then the next thing is if you're in competition with someone else it's a case of well what's the right point to be all in or to leave it to fight for another day and and that is it's not an, it's not always an easy. Uh, thing to think about. Some people don't think about it at all. <laughs> Which never ends well. <laughs> I think in this situation, in most situations, how I like to operate is I like to shoot from the hip. And that, that really works for me just to shoot from the hip, go with what is intuitively correct, but have the analytical mind as an override. It's up there just looking like another person on your shoulder going, yeah, that was good, but maybe we should think about this. And for me, that works very well in all situations, and especially motorsport. You know, I like to shoot from the hip. I do what feels correct. But then obviously I have the analytical check is always um, going yes, no, yes, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really powerful. If you can get that, if you can get that imbalance, that balanced well, because you know, so someone like myself, I race as well, but I'm more of an engineer, so I can be a bit over analytical in the car. So it kind of slows me down a bit, and I don't maybe I don't push or take that extra risk. So so mine's like a bit bit too much, maybe too dominant one way, and then. There's other people who haven't aren't doing any analytics in their head at all, and they, <laughs> and then there's I think what you're talking about is somewhere in the middle, which is absolutely absolutely fascinating. So how did you get like because it's not just skydiving and uh, motorbikes, um, and there's horse riding in here. There's you know so how, how about you know what else? How how do you get from from that point from like skydiving? And and I've seen some of the pictures actually you took, uh, which are absolutely phenomenal. I mean they're just completely inspiring. I think, uh, beautiful pictures of, of people skydiving. But then how do you get from that to like, well, actually, let's go, let's go racing cars. <laughs> yeah. It is bizarre. It is bizarre. And basically when I kind of came out of skydiving, it was a little hiatus of a few months. And then, um, myself and John own a, a large amphibious airplane, an albatross. It's a hundred foot wingspan and twin engine built in 53 as a really cool plane. And we were kind of flying this together as pilot and co-pilot. And Red Bull drink, energy drink, approached us. And because we know those guys, all of my skydiving buddies are on the Red Bull Air Force. And we were chatting, oh, it would be cool if Red Bull, you know, you know, sponsored the plane and we did cool stuff with it. And Red Bull loved that idea. And for five years, we were pilot and co-pilot because um, both John and myself are commercially rated pilots. And we flew that for five years for all their flu targs and the air races just to do demonstrations and fun, do some VIP trips. And we had a blast, but it was such hard work. And flying is much more analytical than shoot, shoot net, rather than shoot from the um, your CD pants. It was a lot of fun. At the end of five years, we were exhausted. I had filthy fingernails because I was always maintaining the engines. <laughs> It was one of my jobs to pre-flight the plane, and it's a 1953 airplane with radial engines. So, you know, I'm hanging off the nacelle, like 20 feet off the ground, checking oil and IOC levels and this kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun, but I was like, yeah, maybe it's time not to have dirty fingernails. (laughs) So the contract kind of came to a natural end, and 
you know, I've, I was ribbing John. I was just like, you know, like you've never had a decent car. John's just not a car guy. You know, he just drives to the store sort of thing. I'm like, come on, you, know, you can afford a decent car. You should have a decent car. And John's so analytical. We're completely opposite. He's the analytical one. I'm, he, you know, I'm James Hunt. He's Nikki Lauder. <laughs> You know, and so he goes off on his research mission for which took two, uh, nearly two years of what's the perfect car to buy. I love this guy. I love this guy already. I, we, we've never, I want to meet this. I need to meet John. It's that's amazing. You should, you should, you should do a podcast because it's the other side of the coin for sure. And um, of course, he's going to space shortly, so uh, maybe you can have a, your first astronaut on the podcast. <laughs> that would be amazing. As you know, just drop that in. Just drop that in. Yeah. yeah. So he goes off on his analytical court thing to find the best course streetcar. And I lost interest after two or three months because we test drove everything, the 458 Ferrari at that time and all the other stuff. And, and I was like, yeah, buy this one. The Lambo's fun. Buy the Lambo. I buy them all, you know. But he just, me, me, didn't quite want, you know. And, he's, and eventually ends up with a Ford GT which I have to say was a very good choice. And it's a good indication of, yeah, sometimes analytical people win the race because it's, it was a spectacular car, awesome, awesome fun. I have lots of track time on street bikes on tracks, and we had the car for a couple of months. <laughs> it does 70 miles an hour in first gear, so <laughs> we're driving on the street, and I said, this, this is going to end really badly. We just need to take it to a track and get to know it and whatever. And we literally did our first track day, I think, at Road Atlanta, and I remember turning up there with a Ford GT, and we split the time between John and myself. <laughs> and he's like, you're in the bronze group, which is, you know, they in America, they they tier the track days, you know, the beginner, medium and, and uh, advanced. And, and I remember being like so nervous in like waiting for the pit lane to go green. And those are 20 minute sessions. And that 20 minutes, I think it lasted like 10 hours in my brain. But, you know, I, I came up to speed pretty quick and it was a super fun car to drive. You get heel towing. It's a manual. It's super, and you just burn off everybody at the track day because it's just incredibly powerful and fun. Can I just go roll back to that one one comment? So you're sitting at the beginning of your first track day and you're really nervous, but this is someone who does motorbikes, base jumping. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> it was a new experience, and of course, the car was worth a lot of money and. Yeah, you know, I just no idea what to really expect. I, you know, I mean, I've got the track days on, on motorcycles and stuff, but it's, I don't know, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that could go wrong here. But, you know, pretty soon came up to speed and I moved up to, um, I got myself in the end, uh, GT3 RS, um, uh, 997.2, which is, I think, the pinnacle of the GT3 series, in my opinion, the last stick and, yeah, and I still have that today. It's in the garage. I haven't driven it forever. But um, that was our beginning in, in motorsport. And initially, it was super fun. We are learning, you know. I think the third track day we went to, we met this guy called Michael Stoschmitz, who um, runs Sideline Sports Photography. He runs this trip to the Nürburgring every year just for the four or five people. And he said, you need to come. You guys are cool. It'll be fun. I'm like, Nürburgring, I was like something in my head about Sabina Schmitz and the transit plan from the old Top Gear episode and John had never heard of it. And we were just at the end, you know, we were just like, well, okay, we'll do that. And that was just like skydiving for the first time. We went to the Nürburgring, rented a streetcar, did a couple of laps, and I was like, okay, this is the next thing we're doing. Really? Was it was it that that kind of right? We're here. We've got was it 129 corners or whatever, and it just comes at you constantly, super narrow. Really exciting. Or was it because you were taken around and shown what could be done? Or what was it? What was it that just sort of lit that up in you? Was like right, we're going to do this. It's a whole combination of stuff because we the track itself is completely overbearing. Did do some like simulator stuff at home just to learn the track. So we kind of went in. We kind of knew roughly where everything was, you know. I did three. That year it snowed terribly. The VLM was cancelled. We were supposed to have like four days on track and we got one afternoon, did three laps only. It was terrible weather. It was like late March, early April. They had snow berms going down the Fox River. I remember that. Just a whole bank of snow. It was insane. So we didn't get that much time on track. but. Mike knows 
knew Sabina and Klaus, and we got invited to Sabina's house one night. John and Sabina got into drinking two and a half bowls of snaps together. <laughs> I took one sip and I was like, okay, you know, I'm not a snaps girl. Yeah, they demolished two and a half bottles of hazelnut snaps. And, and we had the most hysterical evening. We had some video, but we just play occasionally because it makes us cry laughing. Sabina, just the most incredible person I think I've ever met in my entire life. And we got on like a house on fire because she also rides horses and I have horses. So we had that instant connection. That night she says, you know, come to the track tomorrow. I, I'll have my car. We can go for a lap. So I was like, okay, you sure you're going to be sober enough exactly. to go? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was a hoot and like next morning like my phone rang at 10 30 she says hey i'm gonna do tourist and farting you know um come out for a lap so i just turned up at the tourist entrance i didn't really know what to expect and i jumped in her gt3 rs and you know she's peeling around the track and we're laughing a hoot and giggling about the previous night and then talking about horses as she's drifting it sideways down arenberg and I was like, yeah, I think I'm at home. This is my kind of demographic. <laughs> so um, that was, it was a kind of a mix of everything. It was, the track was insane, overloaded, overload completely. And so it was really good to hang out with Sabina and Cloud. And then this is the kicker that did it. And sometimes life just hinges on one fulcrum point. In my time when we were doing the GT4 GT and the track days in America, and um, working on what cars I like and that kind of stuff. And and I saw this BAC Mono. So the BAC Mono was on Top Gear and I, I was researching it and I was like, that's a really cool car. I, I want to drive that car. Just- Not for two years, though. Not for two years. <laughs> 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 you were like, oh, yeah, I, I like that and I can drive it on the road. Let's have a go. <laughs> Like instantly, I just want to drive it, you know. So, and I'd, I'd seen that the, there was a company at the Nurburgring who had uh, a VSE Mono. I had two actually. So, I went, John and I drove there on our last night in the country. We drove there, and the guy was one guy was there because it was cold and snowy, and, and the track was mostly closed and everything. One mechanic was there, one, one rep from RSR was there, knocked on the door. It looked like it was dark and nobody was in, but he just chatted to him. And this guy was called Angus Chapel, he worked for RSR and Oberg. And he invited us in, made us a cup of coffee, chit-chatted about our experience. And he wasn't selling us. He was just an enthusiastic guy, you know, and the BAC Mono wasn't there. It was off for repair because they're always away for repair. And so we chatted to him and he put us in like a Lotus 240 or 260 or whatever with the full cage and sat us in there. So, yeah, you can rent this and it'll cost that much. And I'll put a little program together for you. And, you know, at the end of the year, you could do an RCN, you know, possibly. Uh, was it like RCN? What's that? And oh, maybe you do a VLN. I had no idea what the race series were. And so it kind of like we didn't realize that, you know, you could really progress like that, especially at that track. And we went back home, spent two months clearing up our affairs here. Then we went for a two-month trip to the Nürburgring and spent literally two or three days on track every week, learning the track, going to spa, learned spa, rented cars, this, that, and the other. And eventually Sabina's race team decided and said they would build us a Cayman to race. Wow. So it was literally one little, one little moment, and now – Whatever you had planned for the rest of the year is like right. We're gonna we're just gonna like just pop back over and uh, just have a little go at this. Maybe take it quite seriously. <laughs> it really was, and I guess otherwise we'd have come back to America and done some stuff here, and maybe would have been more involved with something like IMSA or races here. But we just did that. Yeah. So that's fulcrum point. You know, it, it just everything hinged on hinged on that, and I like the way it's turned out. I. We have so many good friends and such good times for the last 10 years at the Nürburgring and racing in Europe. So I'm happy it went that way. I'm sure I'd be saying the same race in America and we were involved in IMSA or something. Yeah. One of the things I, I was talking to some organisations recently about how people come into motorsport. So you've gone through a kind of track day experience into racing and I think there's there's some real opportunity there because they're not always – I mean, in America, it's a bit more integrated, but I think in other parts of the world, it's not quite 
they're not quite as integrated between the different organizations who get involved in all these things. So people are just there to sell chat days and they don't really care. And racing people are like, oh, well, they're only doing chat days. They don't really know what they're doing yet kind of thing. So we're not really that interested. But in actual fact, it's a kind of a, a, it's a graduate stepping stone, isn't it? You know, you want to try a little bit, test the water and a track day is a wonderful place to do that and particularly in america with all the with all the um the instruction and stuff that they have and then yeah there's actually like we're gonna want to give this a go and go racing and 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 you know go go f- go for it properly and it's like oh well actually oh uh, well, you need to feel a little bit supported in it because it's a, it is a, you're stepping into a world of unknown it's like i i you know i was just you mentioned horses i mean if i if i wanted to start horse riding competitively it'd be like well where do i start for that i, I haven't got a horse i haven't got expert experience i don't know what the events are i don't you know see, there's all this kind of stuff to learn that you, you kind of need a bit of a hand holding so it's, it's wonderful that you've had that from the beginning there really which is great it's funny the transition for us we we came did that year in Europe and mostly the Nürburgring and Spa and some other tracks also. And then at the end of that year, which is September, October, we did the RCM, which is like a time trial with some speed laps also at the VLN. That was our first official race in Germany. When we came back and we were buying some some Hoosiers for uh, some semi-slicks for our track day or something, and the guy, we're chatting to him about our experience in Germany and he said, wow, you guys... You need guys need to go racing and like hone your wheel-to-wheel skills. What you need to do is go race MX5s, which is spec Miata here in America. And we had no idea what that was, and we just jumped right in. Yeah, sure, we'll do that. And we found out that we had to be SCCA members and got rented a car for a race or two, and then bought our own Miatas, and and that was insane fun. <laughs> no one can see it, but your eyes went one way and then the other, then smiled and went. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nothing like the Miata scene in America. It, it is off the chart. And I, it's like it's racing in slow motion, it's spending in slow motion, and it's crashing in slow motion. But it's insanely competitive. And, like, you have 70 cars on the grid, and it's just unbelievable. And I think that the first few races I was involved in, it's a bit like bumper cars. Everyone's swapping paint and... You know, the, the cars aren't quick, but there's a lot of skill involved. And it, this is, we learn our, our racecraft there. And I can't recommend that kind of entry level racing, club level stuff enough because you just really, you need a cheap car. It doesn't matter if you, the whole car, I think it was like 40K or something. Like the bumper on my Mercedes AMG GT3 costs more than that, just the freaking sport car. It's really good to be in a car that's safe but slow, but you know you can you can bend the whole thing and you're not going to be too stressed about it. Yeah, we enjoyed. We did two two and a half years of uh, Spec Miata, and also uh, in the winters because in the summer we go to Nurburgring and, and Europe and race there. But I think some of the most fun times and most educational in motorsport were spent in that car. I remember one race I qualified. There's 70 cars on the grid, and I qualified like. P12 or 13, which is, you know, I was, it's club racing, but at the same time at the sharp end, these guys are pretty freaking quick. It's, it's, it's sharp. Like I was proud of myself. I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I would be over the moon with that. That would be, that's a real result. Yeah. I think John was like right behind me or right one in front of me or something. So we were together and in, in that kind of racing, you bump draft a lot. So it's good to have a partner you partner up with, you're bump drafting, you know, and I was like, great, John's right there. We can help each other. It's going to be a fantastic race. I was so proud of myself. I went to the paddock lineup and, it's a nice sunny day in Sebring, so I lie on the bonnet of the car and I'm just waving people, chatting to people, you know, I'm just loving the, the whole thing. And then I get my helmet on, I get in the car and I had a net. You have to have a net, obviously, on the on the window side and it's impossible to get in on your own. So you always have uh, one of the mechanics come along and they help you. My mechanic was late to the show. He was helping somebody else. He got hooked up. He wasn't there. I'm trying to fix it. And like steward looks at me and she puts her hand in front of me and says, you're not going anywhere, you know, as she should do because you need your net, obviously. And I watch 50 cars get waved past me. (laughs) Oh, no. 
on the paddock, which is brutal. You know, a mechanic turns up, he fixes the net, and I'm just like, come on, let me go. And she just is like, no, you staying right there. And they all go past me, every single one, and she waves me out last. And I was so livid, I was so insanely livid. I was like, I'm going to come back to the paddock, I'm going to rip her head off. <laughs> and then when I got it on the track, and I was warming my tires up, and with 70 cars on track, you know, by the time you catch up to the tail of it, the, the, the green flag's flown already, you know, so you're way in the back. But I came completely relaxed, and I thought, actually, I've got nothing to lose here. You know, I can only gain. And I had one of the best races of my life. I came from the back. I just overtook so many people, one after the other, people crashing in front of me, just catching up because, you know, the back markers were not as quick as I was. Super fun, just slicing and dicing through everything. And I ended up at the end of the race, P12. Wow. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, wow. That is amazing. But, you know, a lot, a lot of people crash. It's like third of the field crash in that kind of scenario. But it was so much fun. To, you know, it's a 30-minute race, and you're just slicing through people left, right, and center. You know, I caught up to John, and we did some bump drafting in, in the last couple of laps. I was like, oh, I went up to that steward at the end and I shook her hand. Thank you for that. I just had the best race. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't your intention, but it got me pumped up. And, uh, and But in the right mindset, in a kind of calm and also assertive, and I'm going to go for it and I'm going to take the opportunities that I have and, and make the best of it. Oh, it sounds amazing. It was fun. I think it really illustrates that racing is mind. It's a mind game. It's a mindset, and you really have to be a master of your own mind. I think any sport does that for you. You really begin to realize who it is that you are, you know, how you react to situations, pressure, how you react to your performance, whether it's good or whether it's bad. This is a real indication of who you are and what you're capable of, capable of mentally. There's a couple of things on my list here which would be really interesting to hear about. One one is the fitness side, and then the other is is just being a woman in motorsport, uh, that kind of elephant in the room conversation. But I think it's something that would be fascinating to get your perspective on. Pick either you want to start with, but I think, I think they're both kind of fascinating topics. Well, I think um, with the fitness, it's interesting that, you know, your website is you're data driven and you're very data oriented. And we all know as, as drivers and engineers how much we get from the data out of the car. And obviously, when I'm working with uh, my pro driver, Moritz Kranz or Fabian Schiller, who just came second at the Nürburgring 24 hour race this weekend, I'm very, very happy for him. And, you know, we're always plugging data. You know, you go out in the car, if it's a test or if it's quality or if it's the race and you come back, you're just pouring over all the data. And this is so beneficial to anyone, track day or amateur or pro. It's all data driven. A lot of low-hanging fruit, I think, with amateur drivers is that they're not collecting data from themselves, from their own bodies. Now, there are many devices you can use for this. I really like the Whoop. The Whoop is spectacular. It has a very good algorithm for exercise and a pretty good one for sleep also. I think it really focuses you on what works for you and your body, for fitness, for supplements, for sleep. And all these things need to work together. And if you're going to be successful in the car, you need to be an athlete. And it doesn't mean to say that you'll never eat a pork chop again or you know, you'll never drink another glass of wine. There's no, that's an absolutism. But if you're coming up to a race, you need to already have a good line, of, a baseline of fitness. And I feel like the devices really give you an insight in what works for you and what doesn't. And everybody is different. Like 20-year-old boy is going to be different to me. I'm in my 50s and I'm a woman, so everything is different. But you don't know unless you have the data. So I love my work device. I'm working with it all the time. Um, fitness regimen varies. Um, I like to vary all the different things I do. It works for me personally. So I like to do some running, some swimming. I have my horses, which are in a different level of exercise also. And I know what works for me. And what especially works for me is listening to the work device and resting before the race. Like I think a lot of people, once they get into a fitness mode, they overtrain. Rest is essential and interesting point there is um the guy who wrote the four minute mile who's who i forget scottish guy um who's i think it was the 40s or 50s he, he did that he tried everything to break the four minute mile he tried everything he possibly could he tried different diets he tried different exercise regimes and in the end what did it was rest 
he rested for five days before he did the, the attempt and he smashed it by a couple of seconds. So it worked for him and that definitely works for me. I work on my fitness when I'm not a competition coming up. A competition coming up, I have a very precise run up to day one. Have you done that? Have you worked that out there? Because I mean, is that something you've you've sort of evolved? Because obviously fitness has been and activity has been quite a big part of your whole life. And so you'll have already some feeling for how to go about doing that. You know, as we talked about before, I've got a little bit of exposure to that world of Olympic uh, training. I actually worked on uh, the modern day version of the four minute mile, the two hour marathon record. So, which was another, another physiological, uh, leap. You know, is this even possible to run a marathon in under two hours? And, um, obviously it was. So, but that was very, very much that came down to the humidity of the atmosphere. We actually had a weak window for that program. So although we, we, we anticipated doing it on whatever day it was at the weekend, if the weather wasn't right, we were going to delay it until you know, the other day. So, so it got to that level, but we don't have to, in amateur race, you don't have to get to that point. But what, how, how do you know if it's working or not? And, you know, how do you know what to try? And the whoop comes in um, and I, and there are other, other devices that you can use. The Apple watches, you know, there's no, there's no um, professional athlete using that. The Fitbit, I haven't been interacted with that for a while, but there's no professionals counting steps. The one that I really like is the whoop, and that really gives you an indicator um, of your level of recovery um, and your level of exertion. Uh, for me, I always, always, always used to overtrain. From, I used to overtrain, and I, there was a mistake I made. And then it's only recently in the last, I would say, five to ten years, I've realized that, yeah, no, it's not the best thing. You know, you need to have a good level of base level of fitness and then coming up to the race, you need to rest and recuperate and have all that energy in store, you know, especially for something like the 24 hours of the Nürburgring, which this is, you start on Wednesday and it ends on Sunday. And really by the time you they drop the green flag, I'd be exhausted because you have all these programs written into your schedule. You know, you've got the engineer meetings, you have meetings with AMG, you have schedules for signing of the fan car. And, and then you get like they have a free practice like at nine in the morning. Then you get another one at eight at night. And you've got this huge spectrum of time to do something with it. It all seems to get filled with something. Literally, by the time they drop the green flag, it's just like, thank God they did that. <laughs> <laughs> get on with the, the main event. So you, you learn the hard way and I look at every race now, I, I get the schedule and I work to each one. I see there's a gap in the schedule. I'm like, I'm going to have a nap there, you know, or like I'm going to do some stretching or some yoga or whatever I need to do. Um, but the worst thing you can do is arrive at the track tired because you've overtrained or you didn't sleep correctly or, you know, you haven't got that nailed down. And then when you get to the track, it's it's very easy to get caught up in other stuff, you know, people want to talk or chat, they want to go see this thing or whatever, or, you know, and then I think you really need to be successful is to engineer the whole thing. You know, it's like, I see a gap in the schedule there, I can take some rest. You know, I have a nine o'clock and um, free practice, you know, I need to get up at six, I need to wake myself up, you know, I need to make sure that when I'm in the car at you know, 8.50 that everything's switched on. And then I need to recuperate right away, got to hydrate. You should be hydrating the week before anyway. You know, this sounds obvious, but um, not many drivers. Well, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound obvious. It sounds obvious to you, but it, and maybe because obviously I've been exposed to that world. But but I don't think it's obvious. I don't think that's obvious to everyone. I think I think the, the you you can't just do it the night before and and hope you're going to be all right. It's it's a it's a long term thing that you need to focus on for that week before. I think. And I think also. Uh, it's very useful to get a blood test, like an athletic blood test, so you know where your deficiencies are. And a lot of people, like, they just start taking supplements or something, and there's no need unless you see a hole in the panel. Then you can fill that hole with the supplements that you need, not the ones you don't need. And also the quality of the supplements is incredibly important. There's so much stuff out there. Even if you go to, like, the proper store where they have all the supplements and half of it comes from china and there's some good stuff that comes from china but at the same time a lot of it is not traceable 
everything I take is traceable to the elements and it gets a little bit specific and there's a little bit of hard work to work all that out. It's very, very important because we are what we put in our bodies. So um, there's some baseline stuff that you, everybody generally really needs and then just for um, things like hydration, you know, you're racing at the weekend, you need to start hydrating properly on Monday. So you have all your magnesium, selenium, zinc, all your trace elements, your potassium that's in there already. You can't do it once you're at the track because you'll start free practice on Thursday, then you'll quality Friday morning, then the hammer drops on Saturday. I totally agree. And, and having that plan, actually, you've obviously got a schedule, but quite often you may not have a schedule. You've got the schedule of when you need to be on track, and then that's kind of defined for you. But then the rest of it is up to you. And something that, that we've certainly started to do now, and it, uh, it makes my wife laugh because she comes and I actually schedule in family time. And obviously, you know, this, this causes a little bit of political tension because it's never enough or it's, you know, it's not the right time. But, but the point is, is we've, we've put that in as a kind of expectation. And, and what it does is it actually reduces my stress as a driver and it, and it reduces her uh, worry about, well, what's going on? When is stuff happening? What, you know, when can I see you or not? Because there's different things that we want to try and do in preparation. And then there's other windows. Like you say, we might have like a big gap in the program of like, five hours or something and it's like well we'll get everything we need to done prepped and then we'll have like three of those hours relaxing hopefully not walking around too much wearing ourselves out and then you know an hour before we'll go back into sort of race driver mode and it's like that's worked really well and it's super simple it just takes that little bit of just that little bit of thought beforehand but it's interesting to hear that you've you've had had success with, with that as well yeah, I like to schedule everything out. I'm, I'm kind of loose, shoot from the hip kind of person, but I do like to have everything scheduled. And then there's no surprises. I also have some devices at the track that I'd love to use, like the Beamer blanket. It's a PMF blanket. And this is pulse electromagnetic field. And it's just, it's basically um, increases your blood flow. And it's a mat, mat you lay on. And the, the device I use is called a Beamer, B E M E R. I have one at home, use it every day, and I have another one at the track that's in the trailer. And that thing, I, I lie on that, do a 10 or 20-minute session, and it's great after and before. And that's one thing that I really, really like and, and um, I find is an easy, easy fix. You know, it's not it's not so cheap. I think the units are three, four, five thousand, 5,000, depending on which one you get. But um, it's worth its weight in gold. It really is. And, of course, this ties in also to the whoop device because when I started using the Beamer, I could see the increase in HRV on the whoop. So here you go with data. It's just right there. It points to, look, you did this and that happened. Because I was going to ask you, could you feel any different? So before I had a chance to do that, you've already said, actually, I've seen it in the numbers. There's another cool um, device also. It's not a device, but it's a, there's a company called Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, Nucalm. And they have a really cool, it's an app for your phone. Um, and you have to pay for it. Again, it's not so cheap, but it's it's spectacular. You put a little dot on your wrist, that little point, that pressure point that um, people use for sickness, motion sickness. I forget what that point's called on your wrist. You put a little dot on there and um, you put your earphones in and it plays and plays music. And underneath the music, they tie in binaural beats. And basically, it will put you into a nap. It'll take you into theta sleep in the space of you can have a 20 minute nap or an hour long nap it doesn't matter and it's incredible it's very very powerful because i'm not kenny reichner you know i can't take a nap <laughs> very easily yeah that guy just passes out and wakes up and jumps in his car like if i want to rest whether it's at home coming up for a race or at the racetrack and i have a big gap between sessions I can use new calm and get a 20 to 40 minute really good rest, relax and come out feeling fresh. And that is a spectacular, a very good company. They're very proactive and with athletes and, and their system. I like that a lot. And the Beamer also is, is very spectacular. If you have the space to, you know, lie down, a lot of people maybe go to the track and they're towing their spare wheels behind the car they're driving. And this is different. But, you know, if you have the, the space to uh, lie down, even if it's in your car, you can put the Beamer in your own car and you can take a nap in your own car. But all these things add up, you know, you, you have to get into the car for quality, absolutely 100%. 
And the way you do that is cut all this low-hanging fruit, the fitness regime, the whoop, the devices at the track, and so that when you get in, you know, you, you've done everything you can to be in the best physical state. The mental state is something else. <laughs> yeah, so how do you do that? How do you, how do you prepare the mental state? Do you have a coach or do you, do you have your engineers or do you have someone you're talking with or is it very much self-coaching and you've got your own ways of getting yourself in the state you want to be in? Yeah, I think um, I spent a lot of time in, in competition. Um, I played volleyball for England when I was uh, a kid in the under-16 squad. Just, just rolling in another sport there, by the way, just, uh, just to throw that in at really just quite a high level. <laughs> but so I've been in situations a lot, but if, you, if it's new, it's new, and there's always a level of nervousness. So, you know, when the, like we did our first races at the Nürburgring and, you know, finding a way in Cayman, and there was a lot of learning there, and there was some, some angst or whatever, and I had to go back to previous competition to find a, a central spot. Um, but you, you, naturally, if you're going to start racing or you're new to it or there's a new situation, you're going to be a little bit amped. And you just have to kind of drive through that. Um, but when you come out the other side and things are familiar, then you need to be in a good mental state. And I find um, if you're physically good, the brain will follow. And then you also have to get to a – you have to do your mental work. And there's plenty of things you can do for this. And that whole subject is a myriad. For me, I can find center quite easily because I go back to my previous sports and I think the biggest one there is um, base jumping because you have to find your center pretty quick when you're about to jump off a cliff. And it comes naturally because you're at that kind of make or break moment. I've done everything I possibly can to make this situation perfect. Here I am. The conditions are good. I'm going to go. And so I, I kind of go to that spot to find my basis in motorsport. When, once you find your center and you're calm, now you need to dominate. The next step is domination. So when you start the motor and you peel out of the pit lane and you hit the limiter, you have to think that you're going to dominate this. And that's a feeling that takes a long time, longer time to come. And it's experience-related, it's um, performance-related, but you have to kind of talk yourself through that point. I've had some drivers on the show, like some like ex-Formula 1 drivers and stuff like that, and they talk about being ahead of the car or behind the car. And it's kind of like when you said that, it's sort of that sort of, that's what I thought of in the sense of like this, this thing isn't going to bully me. I'm going to not bully it necessarily, but I'm in control. And I imagine that must, I mean, like your horse riding must have some element of that as well, because, you know, there's, there's a case of like having to work with what you have there. And it's, but in a kind of like, I'm the boss mentality. Yeah. yeah the whole thing is interesting because, you know, I do three day eventing, which is um, a dressage show jumping and cross country jumping all in one. And when you set out on cross country or when you sit on the horse at any point, you have to be calm because they key off of whatever's going on with you. So really uh, the level of calmness I also take from riding horses. Even if you are nervous about this, that, or the other, you really cannot. You have to cover it and suppress it or learn how to deal with it because the horse just picks up on it. But then again, but then also again, you just need to be calm and in control, and I think that's with the car, it's kind of like this almost the same. You can dominate it but by, by being super aggressive but that's not going to last long <laughs> not necessarily going to help you drive the best you can you can do so it's sort of sort of digging into that what that dominating means it's kind of like oh it's, it's fascinating for me in my mind when i think i'm going to dominate this it's not the car it's not the track it's everybody else on track you know for me it's like i i'm going to dominate my performance in and that is my mindset going out the lane i have to say that Visualizations really help, especially for learning ropes, for driver changes, that kind of stuff. But uh, I view my cockpit as my office. Like I, I step into the AMG and it's like it's my office. I'm familiar with it. I know where everything is. It's my friend. I really enjoy it. There's nothing like driving that car. It is. <laughs> it truly is. I mean, in whatever um, uh, BOP or confirmation you've got, Obviously, the Nürburgring is a little, little low on power and a little low on downforce, but, you know, you need that set up for that track. 
in GT Open, we have more downforce, a lower riding car, more horsepower, but we have less sticky tires. So that's also a lot of fun. But I sit in that car and it's just, it's, it, I'm so familiar with it. It's such a phenomenal beast to drive. I feel like it's my office. Okay, it's time to do business. Here we go. It's that That's my mindset when I get in the car. I did drive a friend's Ferrari um, a few weeks ago in Portimao in, in Portugal. He has a, uh, a Ferrari GT3 car, and it was just a test day. And he said, oh, you come, come and drive the Ferrari. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'd love to, you know, experience that. It'd be cool. I jumped in thinking I was just going to go and drop the hammer and put some saucy lap times in because I love Portimao. It's just the most phenomenal track in the world and just behind Spa and Nürburgring. And um, it was just alien to me. The cockpit was just way too many buttons and way (laughs) technical. And I just wasn't familiar with it. And, of course, I go out on track and start to try and push it a bit. And it's a mid-engine car, so it just slides off grip uniformly left and right like front and back, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to spin this up to speed quite so quick as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, I, I try, you know, familiarize, is the more familiar you are with any, anything, the more relaxed you're going to be. And I think for your mental state, I see a lot of people at the track, and they're trying to operate at mental level 10. You know, they're too amped, it's, it's too intense, they're going to have an accident. You can see it or think something's going to go badly wrong. Ten is crazy and zero is asleep. Then I really think to drive the car effectively, you need to be seven, eight. You know, when, if you're operating at the nine, ten level, it's just not going to go well. And you have to know yourself. You know, you have to know yourself. Uh, and you only know yourself by doing sport and putting yourself in sharp situations and know how you react. And um, I got to do my four-hour race without any uh, any other help, which was an incredible experience also. Well, you did four hours on your own? Yeah. Whoa. I did the entire last race of the v- of NLS. I did. I thought you I thought you knew that. I, was, I should have told you that. So it, was, it has been done before by – but it's usually GC3 teams will put one driver in just for testing. So they'll go out in the race. They'll do five laps, come in, check some stuff, go out. So they're not really in the race. So I did that last race of that series and four hours, qualification in the morning for half an hour and 45 minutes and then had an hour hour and a half break and did the four-hour race completely on my own. It's hard to know where to stop, really. It's just just like, well, we've got to fit something in. But, yeah, that's, um, that's quite a long time. It is, and it's interesting. And when you think you know yourself, I'm 57 this year, and you think you've done a whole bunch of stuff, and you've discovered a whole bunch of stuff because you've nearly died many times, and you know you've been whole through life's experience or whatever. That four-hour race was um, very educational to me because I set out in quality. I qualified reasonably well. My mindset was like, if I crash the car, I won't have to do the four-hour race. <laughs> And I usually drive with a little bit of margin, but I was like, fuck it. If I crash the car, John won't mind because, you know, he's crashed so many cars and he can't complain if I just do one chassis. So I drove like, you know, I'm going to, if I crash, I don't have to do the race, but it turned out good and I got a good quality. And <laughs> so I had to do the race. And then oh, I was like, I didn't oh. even do that right. Oh. <laughs> oh, don't even crash the car. What the hell? And I got to the grid and the, the whole grid process takes a long time, analyst. And you do the whole outlap, which is 27 kilometers of outlap. You know, it goes on for freaking ever. Then you get to start your four hours. And I went through so many different emotional states from just from like, I'm nailing it. This is awesome. Like to, oh, God, again, do the Fox Royal? What the hell? What am I doing? Like, you know. Can I manage to complete the race without peeing my pants? Or, you know, it's like, what's going to happen here? And, like, at the end of stint two, I was like, I'm just going to call it. There's no reason I don't have to finish the race. You know, I can just back and just stop at any point. And then halfway through the third stint, I was just like, you're an idiot. What? Who's, whose idea was it to do this? You know? <laughs> and then, like, I got this buzz, this, like, post is after a while, I was just like, I'm nailing it. I'm loving it. I'm like, I've, this is my 25th lap, and it's awesome. It, just, it was like this. It was so funny. And then 
getting the nutrition right, running up to that, and then having the goo packs. I love the goo packs. They keep me alive. I should have mentioned those too. But, yeah, that was the whole thing. That's amazing. I want to ask you, I'm looking at the time going, where's that time gone? It's been amazing. I just, I do want to ask you about being a woman in motorsport. I just think it's one of those things, talking about finding the right level and, and going out to dominate and all this, the mind side of stuff. I think it's quite a, you know, a nice segue into that. My perspective to set the scene is actually motorsports is one of the most inclusive sports on the planet. Like from a rules-based point of view, there is no separate male or female championship for Formula One or the top things. You're like, you, you, you can go and do it. And I, I, I think that point gets missed quite a lot. However, traditionally, it's not been that inclusive to people. So how has it been for you? And how do you see your position in that world? Is it something that you're just not even interested to discuss? Or is it something that you, you feel, oh, it'd be nice to have a few more girls on the grid or, you know, what driving, you know, what, what, what is it that, what's your perspective on it? I don't know. I think um, I also, interesting enough, the horses is another sport where it doesn't matter if you're male, male or female. You know, it's it, it, there's a level playing field. I've never really been bothered by that whole thing. My whole life, I just kind of, you know, I just cruise into it, and it's 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 kind of fun to be in the boys' world. You know, at the same time, I wish there was more women in the sport, but there's plenty coming up now, and there's plenty making. Uh, it, not having to be on an all-girls team or an all-girls series. You know, there's plenty of people coming up and we've got fantastic people like Catherine Legg. You know, we've got Jamie Chadwick now coming up and Christina Nielsen, I think, won the Inter Championship in 21 or 20, was it, I think? And now Rima Jafali from Saudi, she's actually part of the GT Open Series with me and lots of women coming up. And I think eventually, here shortly, we're going to see our first Formula One, not our first Formula One female driver, but first modern modern time Formula One woman driver. Um, maybe it's Jamie, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But, you know, it's we've had a whole, you know, just 100 years since they gave us the vote. So... <laughs> <laughs> Or should I say they gave us the vote, we earned the vote, or we, we fought for it or whatever, you have a phrase it. But um, things are coming, you know, and I think a lot of girls are raised and they're given a dolly and the boys are raised, they're given a toy car and it, it kind of starts there. Um, and we can discuss nature versus nurture for the next 20 years and we're not going to come up with any kind of solid resolution. But there's more and more women um, involved in motorsport, more and more girls in uh, karting. And truthfully, it's the karting that will take the person to the highest levels of sport. You know, if you're not karting by the time you're eight, then maybe you're not going to go to Formula One. So um, we're seeing more and more inclusivity as uh, parents become less kind of gender obsessed. Um, and we'll, we'll see more more come up. For me personally, in motorsport, it's no different to any other sport that I've been in that's male-dominated. You know, it's just a lot of fun. There's a lot of guys to hang out with. <laughs> and I've never really felt like I'm like disadvantaged or a second-class citizen. If I meet that attitude, which does happen occasionally, I just I just pop it on its nose. You know, those people, if, if they want to subjugate or pretend you're less because you're a woman, then it's just a reflection on them, not us their small mind that is reflecting on their actions. And I'm pretty immune to it. I've been around the world. I've done a lot of different stuff on pure mental development side. I really don't value anybody's opinion until I know them and I like them. And there's not many people in that pool. <laughs> and you got to work hard to get into my I value your opinion pool. And um, it's those people that can say a hurtful thing or something that will affect me. And there's a very small pool and there's a very elite pool of people um, whose opinion I trust. But if some random person or someone that I've known for 10 years, but I think they're an idiot or whatever, comes up with some kind of like, oh, you're just a girl, what do you know, sort of stuff, it's laughable to me. It is absolutely laughable. I'm like, yeah, that's right. I'm an idiot. I'm a woman. What do I know? It's just completely affects on their mindset, not mine. So I really haven't really experienced much of that. And of course, I had Sabina as my um, my kind of mentor through all my early years in motorsport, being in the yeah. pit box with her and her helping me with my driving skills and 
and uh, helping develop the car also it was a great you know it's a great role model right there yeah i bet that was an amazing experience and um she always came across so well yeah yeah and she's like that all the time you know she's always bubbly full of fun mg positivity and had time for everyone it was it was cool i suppose it goes full circle actually back to one of my earlier points about people coming into motorsports for the first time it's just having that an access point and a, almost a, what we're talking about is kind of role models a little bit, but also support some kind of support and they feel comfortable to just kind of like explore and learn and find their feet kind of thing. And I think it's wonderful that it's, it's changing and being more, more inclusive for, for everyone really. I think it's over inclusive in a way because there's all these series. There's a series for women only, and you know, if you're a woman and you're halfway good, you know, then you're instantly marketable, and everyone likes to be marketed these days and this kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I feel like you know, not only is it inclusive, it's positively inclusive. Whereas a good thing, I'm not, I don't know. Thank you so much for taking the time. I knew I'd enjoy this conversation. I knew I would. It's, it's absolutely wonderful to hear. I could, you know, I could talk to you about your your background. You're just just, just dropping in. Oh, and I just this this other sport as well at a really high level. We could probably talk about this for ages. But I just look, I want to really thank you for your time and and the thought that you put into considering the different ways in which you could help people listening. And it's it's really appreciated. So thank you very much. Thank you, Samira. It's been a lot of fun. And um, anytime you want to have me back, I'll be right here for you. I told you, didn't I? What an incredible person Janine is. And I certainly hope you found her motorsports and all her other sports stories as fascinating and inspiring as I did. Her grit and determination to complete that four-hour solo event at the Norse Life is truly outstanding. Janine didn't mention it, but at the result, she actually finished P2 and only seven seconds behind P1. It's really quite incredible. I really hope you got as much out of listening to Janine as I did. You may know that at the end of season one, I wrote the Motorsports Playbook, a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom. I made the notes so that you don't have to. If you've not got it yet, go and grab yourself a copy from the website. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.